Undoubtedly, one of the most uncomfortable portions of the Torah is the Teichacha, the rebuke that Moshe Rabbeinu gives the Jewish people with all the warnings of what could Chas happen to us if we don't fulfill Torah and mitzvahs. Now, we know that according to Hasidus, as, me, as bad as these rebukes and curses sound, they actually embed within them these tremendous brochas from Hashem. And that's what we really have to focus on is the great brocha. We're going to see that now in Rashi's commentary right at the end of the Teichacha, which seems to be one of the worst of the curses. And as Rashi spells it out, there's a lot of detail. And the detail seems to make it sound as bad as possibly could be. And that's exactly the point. That means that it contains within it the greatness and the goodness of what could possibly be good. And not only is this a... A declaration or an insight into brochas from Hashem, but it's also an insight into how we come back after we may have gone off the path and lost our way spiritually. The Rebbe says he's explained many times that even though Rashi's primary objective is always to explain the simple understanding of, psukim, of the verses of the Psukim, still, the fact is that within, embedded within his interpretation, there is the wine, the beauty, the, the richness of Torah, the secrets of Torah. As the Alter Rebbe would always say, and that's relevant to us because because this is the week of the Alter Rebbe's birth on Chayelul, in the week of the Haftarah that says that your light should rise and dominate, Oiri, Shnei Oir, Baal-Tarebbe's name. As we know, the Baal Shentov said with regards to the, to the Al-Tarebbe's birth at this time, and the Baal Shentov's birthday and Al-Tarebbe's birthday are both on Chayel. So what do you see within Rashi? The depth and secrets and mysticism of Teirah. So when it comes to Rashi's explanation of the Teichah, these horrible warnings of what could happen to us, embedded in Rashi's commentary is And if generally speaking, Rashi's interpretation is filled with the depth and beauty of Teirah, the secrets of Teirah, it's definitely the case in this context the Teichah. Because the Fibir Rabbi Nazak Berkutatayr Beniger the Divrei Hatayicha Atzmam, as we know that the Alter Rebbe explains in Berkutatayr that what is the real content of these curses, this rebuke of the Jewish people. So the Alter Rebbe explains that even though outwardly they all appear to be the opposite of anything blessed, the Alter Rebbe says the truth is if you really want to know the truth, they are. Only brochas, not only do they also refer to brochas, they're only brochas, they're fundamentally brochas. Which means, but in Torah there's that which is hidden, that which is observable, that which is, so to speak, obvious. So what is the hidden message, which means what is the soul, what is the truth of all of these so-called curses? The greatest brochas. Like the story in Moed Cotton with Rabbi Shimon Ba'yichai, that his son went to get a brocha from these great rabbis, and it sounded like there weren't brochas at all. And Rabbi Shimon Ba'yichai said, No, these are really, really brochas. Sometimes the highest brochas are embedded in things that don't sound like or look like brochas. So that's the parasha generally. But what we're going to find is the same theme in Rashi. Rashi is going to say words that sound as if he's commenting on the Teichacha and uh, embellishing how bad they are. And then at the same time, when you get the neshama of it, he's actually telling us how deeply powerful and positive this all is. So, when you read Rashi at the pshat level, he's telling us in simple language how bad these things really are. 
אבל לפי אין השוטר שברש"י, but once you look in the deeper lens, the wine of Torah within Rashi, then אויסה הלושן עצמו, שבדברי רשי, then you'll discover that the same language that Rashi uses to highlight how severe these curses are is actually the same language that he's using to illustrate how powerful the brochas embedded within them are. And we're going to focus right at the end of the Teichacha, one specific posuk. Right at the end of the Teichacha, <coughs> one of the last curses goes, that Hashem is going to take you back to Egypt in ships. Can you imagine telling the generation that escaped Mitzrayim that they're going back? It's like the worst kind of curse. They're going by ship. The same path that Hashem says, I promised you, you'd never see that, that path again. You'd never see that route again. And what will happen when you get there? You will be sold there to your enemies, as slaves and maidservants. So they'll put you on the market to sell and nobody's going to want to buy you. It's quite logical to assume that if this is the very last Pasuk in the series of so-called curses, it must be one of the harshest of the lot. Because we know that the conclusion of a topic always rounds up the topics. If this is at the end, it's got to be one of the harshest. So let's ask ourselves the question. It doesn't seem so obvious what's so harsh about it. What's so bad? Okay, so we'll go back to Mitzrayim. That's a horrible thing. What's so bad about the fact that nobody's going to want to buy them as slaves? It doesn't sound so terrible. So Rashi explains. First, he explains anios in Hebrew means sphinois, which is actually in Aramaic. Ships, which are ships of captivity. First emphasis, they'll be taken as captives. They'll come to Mitzrayim, not as tourists, as captives. Then, worse than that, when it says nobody's going to want to buy them, Rashi says they're not going to want to buy the Jews because they want to annihilate the Jews. So that implies that Rashi is identifying two major issues that are part of this particular curse. Number one, that the status of the Jews coming into Mitzrayim at this point will be as captives. And secondly, that there will be terrible decrees against them. Which implies that the other words in the passage is the fact that it will be in ships. The fact that it will be back the route that Hashem said you'll never travel again. The fact that they'd be put on the slave market to their enemies. It would sound like those are just details, but the main thing is they'll be captives and there'll be a threat that hangs over their survival. But actually, if you really pay attention to what Rashi says, and you really pay attention to the language, you'll notice that Mashmeinu Rashi kates a kol prat beposuk moisif inyan shu heifachatev leatzmoiki delekamon. Rashi is saying it's not just two facts over here. Every detail in the pasuk compounds the harshness of this particular curse. And therefore, Valderich Zebiyena Shultera, if you pay attention to Rashi, you'll discover that from a deeper perspective, then actually each phrase that's used in the Pasuk is there to compound the greatness and the Brocha that is actually um, included in this particular curse.
Okay, so we've got to understand all of this. And to understand it for Yuvan, we have to ask ourselves firstly the question, why is it such a big deal that the Torah says that you're going back the place, the direction that Hashem said you'd never go? So the Pasuk says that Hashem will take you back on that route that He said you would never see again. What's the difference? Why is that such a significant part of the curse? And that seems to be a glaring question, and it seems like Rashi doesn't answer the question. So we'll see that perhaps there is an attempt by the Mephoshim to explain it. The cost of Mephoshim. So the Mephoshim want to say, look, you've got to pay attention to the fact that you're being taken by ship as opposed to by foot. And that implies that it's, it's much more of a prison-like experience. First of all, because Hashem said that they're never going to see that route again, so first of all, the Mephoshim point out, look, Hashem promised they're never going to go on that route again. So therefore, there's no way they could go overland in order to get to Mitzrayim because Hashem promised they're not going to go that route again. So that's why it says that he's going to take them on, on, on ships. Okay, that's how the Mephoshim want to explain it. That does not fit what we're looking for. We're looking for every word and phrase in the Pasuk highlighting more of the harshness of the curse. This just seems like a technical detail. Hashem has to keep his promise, so he can't take them back that route. Be very difficult to say that that is the full perspective according to Pshat, which is Rashi's angle. This is... Moshe giving, so to speak, curses and rebuke to the Jewish people. He doesn't have to now tackle the technicality of how does it work if, in fact, they were not allowed to go down that route. That's a question for another time. In fact, the Torah didn't have to address this at all. Didn't even have to bring up the issue that you're not supposed to go down this route. Could have ignored it completely because the main issue is they're going to Mitzrayim as captives. The fact that Hashem had made a promise not to go back there surely is not part of the curse. So surely we don't need the explanation of why it has to be ships. And the Torah didn't have to say ships. The Torah didn't have to say that you don't go this route. And it didn't have to say anything about ships. So that's not really a good enough question unless somehow the ships add to the captivity of it. Make it worse. So let's try another angle as it's brought in the Medrash. What's the Torah telling us? You want to know how bad an Avera is? This is how bad an Avera is. That even though Hashem had promised you'd never go down that route ever again, it's possible that we could behave so badly that Hashem will say, that's it, I'm cancelling my promise. So maybe that's the point. Derech Hazeroid is adding to the captivity. You know how bad it is? It's even beyond the fact that Hashem promised you you'd never go there again. You messed up so badly, Hashem says, that's it, I'm cancelling my promise to you. Maybe that's the explanation. But the Rebbe is dissatisfied with that answer, and it doesn't give us absolute clarity why. 
because if the Torah wanted to teach me that principle, which is if the Torah wants to illustrate to us that if a person does an Avera, and especially if they do a serious Avera, it could neutralize Hashem's promises of protection or brocha or whatever it is, you don't have to wait till you get the worst of the worst things that could go wrong, and especially when you get to their culmination all the way at the end, and then say, and that's because you didn't listen. We already know it from Yaakov Avinu who said, He knew that Hashem had promised him safety and security and brocha. And he said, I don't know, maybe I did an Avera and lost that opportunity. And there's no question about it that Yaakov Avinu is certainly not in the category of the people we're addressing over here in the Teichacha. So we don't need such a radical story to teach us that Hashem could renege on a promise because of our behavior. Let's even assume that it is true. And that the Torah does want to illustrate to us over here that sometimes people could behave so badly that Hashem says, that's it, I'm no longer doing what I promised to do. Why do we have to learn this specifically in the context of going to Mitzrayim? It could be anything that Hashem says, I promise you, and then I'm going to cancel it if you don't behave. It goes without saying that it does not suit the Pshat to explain that even though Hashem not only promised, but He instructed us not to go back to Mitzrayim. Look what happened. Look at this. Not only is Hashem not keeping His promise because of our behavior, but He's actually making us transgress the prohibition against going back to Mitzrayim because of our behavior. Wow, that's pretty bad. So if you want to explain it that way, why is that relevant to the Teichacha? That somehow Averus also make us break other Averus as well. It's not clear. It doesn't seem to make sense. So we're looking for something about the language, either that you're going back that same route or that you're going in ships, that highlights and emphasizes the captivity of it. And we haven't yet found it. So to understand that, let's go to the ships. Let's have a look at what Rashi said when he addressed the word Aniyos, that you're going to go on ships. And he says, what does it mean? So first he translates it. Why do you have to translate it? And then he adds, Beshivya, that it's in captivity. Now, surely this is not the place that Rashi should insert the word captives. Surely that word should have belonged to the explanation of Heshivcha. How will Hashem take you back to Mitzrayim as captives? Why is Rashi emphasizing that the ships is Beshivya? What's the connection? The most logical place where Rashi should have spoken about the fact that you will be captives should have been under the heading that is taking people back to Mitzrayim and not under the heading that it's going to be in ships. So there's a beautiful explanation from the Bari Atosvis. What are we looking for? We're looking to highlight and emphasize more of the captivity. Remember that this is the end of the Teichacha. Now we're really ramping it up and saying it's worse than you thought. Why is it worse than you thought? Because they're going back in ships. How does ships add to the intensity of the captivity? Say the Balea If they would have gone back 
to Mitzrayim by foot. Then only adults would have been part of it because only they would have been in a position to walk all the way back to Mitzrayim. But the minute you're loading people onto ships, there's nothing to stop you from loading men and women and even children. That makes it worse. So Aniyos makes the curse a harsher curse. The only thing is, the fact that Rashi just said, Shivya, that they're going into captivity, without explaining why the ships tell us that they're going into a harsher captivity, move on. That indicates, Clearly, Rashi does not think that the issue over here is, wow, look how bad it is, even the children and the, the women are being schlepped along as slaves. Rashi seems more focused on the fact that the going to Egypt by ship is in captivity. So what's Rashi really trying to highlight for us over here just by simply saying that word captivity? The explanation is Rashi Rashi wants to clarify that every detail listed over here in this passage about this horrible re. Uh, re, um, whatever you call it, relocation back to Mitzrayim. It's not just one generic curse. Oh, they're going back to Mitzrayim and that's terrible. Rashi's perspective is that each additional detail that the Pasuk adds is an additional layer of Teichacha, of rebuke and curse in itself. So from Rashi's perspective then, the fact that it tells us it's by ship, the fact that it tells us it's the same route that they had previously been on, that's all balahoisif oid inyan, it's all to add, each element is to add another perspective, another layer. In addition to the fact that it's a terrible thought of the Jews going back, to Mitzrayim, Rashi believes that the way to get to Mitzrayim is in the most degrading way possible, and that's in two facts. Two points. Firstly, Bashib. Rashi's understanding, what's the Torah telling us? Not only when they arrive in Mitzrayim, will they then be captives? But Rashi says the Torah wants us to know that even on the way to Mitzrayim, they will be in ships treated like captives. And that is going to be extremely painful and difficult. Much worse than if they were going overland to get to Mitzrayim. Everybody knows slave ships, I'm sure you must have seen the, the, the paintings or whatever of slave ships of the old days, put everybody down under the deck, cramped conditions, no ventilation, no proper food, illness. It's far worse than traveling overland. So as far as Rashi is concerned, the fact that the Torah tells us that they're going in ships is in itself a highlighting of how bad this particular captivity is going to be. Parenthetically, that's exactly why Rashi does not go with the attitude of the Tosis to say that it's women and children also. First of all, according to Pshat, there's no reason why children 
cannot walk to Mitzrayim or just take longer. How did the Jews get out of Mitzrayim, right? How did they get out? By foot. But besides that, if you go with the approach of the Bada Tesis, it turns out that that there's nothing about being in the ship that is intrinsically bad. It's only where the ship is taking you. And according to the Bada Tesis, it's just adding who is in the, the captivity. But not that there's something to being in a ship which is bad. And if that's true, if the whole purpose of the Pasuk by telling us ships is that we should know that it's going to be men and women and children, the Torah could have done that much more simply by saying, all of you, kulchem. Why does it have to say ships? So the, therefore Rashi is of the view that the ship experience itself is far worse than if people were led in chains by foot all the way back to Mitzrayim. Secondly, what makes it also worse? That Hashem says, this is going to be the path. I promised you, you'd never go down again. You know, it's going to take the same route they already used before in the opposite direction, which is, as the Torah describes, it's a horrible desert, which is completely overwhelming. It's filled with dangerous creatures and a terrible parching thirst. And of course, you don't have to be uh, the smartest person in the room to realize that they won't have the miracles that they experienced when they left Mitzrayim and they protected them from all of these things. In fact, that's why Hashem promised you'll never go there again because it was so terrible. So that also ramps up how bad the curse is to have to go through that horrible place without the protection. Rashi doesn't even have to explain that. Just as he doesn't have to explain what's so bad about going to Mitzrayim because we know, because we were there. But also here, because Rashi says, and he's told us this before, how do you make people fearful like the Miraglim? Did you tell them about things they already fear? So how do you make the Jews fear going into Eretz Yisrael? They tell them that there's Amalek over there. Oh, we know Amalek. We've already dealt with Amalek. Same thing over here. You don't have to expel, explain and spell out what's wrong with Mitzrayim. We know. We were there. You don't have to tell us what's so bad about the desert. We're still in the desert when this conversation is happening. So those facts, Mitzrayim as a place and the Midbar as the root, are things that would strike fear in anybody's hearts already. So as far as Rashi is concerned, every detail of this Pasuk is adding layers of how bad this threat is. Not only will they go into slavery, but the way they're going to go into slavery is in the harshest way possible. Now that we've got that, let's look at what Rashi says next about the Pasuk, how they're going to be, so to speak, on the slave market. When they get there, nobody's going to want to buy them. What does Rashi say? Rashi says something fascinating. He says, You will seek to be sold to them as slaves. You'll want it. It's not that others will take you and put you on the slave market. But rather the curse is that the people will wish to sell themselves as slaves. Now that's strange. That doesn't add up. You just told me they're captives. Now you're telling me that they want to sell themselves. Captives don't get that choice. 
So didn't Rashi just tell us that they were going to be taken down to Mitzrayim as captives? So they're not in a position to put themselves on the slave market. The only way they'd land up on the slave market is they'd be sold by their captors. Furthermore, it doesn't make sense. Also, why does the Pasuk say without, without identifying who the captors are or who the sellers are? just kind of makes it generic. You will be sold. And if, as Rashi concludes, that the end of the story is nobody wants to buy them because people would prefer to be rid of them, then it's actually a moot point who was selling them. That's not the, the, the focus over here. The focus over here is nobody wants to buy them. <laughs> Not who would like to sell them. And Abir Bozeh, so what's Rashi trying to tell us? As Rashi has already shown us, every bit of this Pasuk is just layering how bad the experience of this particular um, exile is going to be. Therefore Rashi explains that the Pasuk is not telling us who uh, about the sale, so to speak, by the captives of the Jews to become slaves. Because the truth is, it's not so surprising. If you're captives, that's what happens. Rashi once said it's worse than that. Not only are they captives, not only will they be on the slave market, but they're going to land up in such a horrible place, which means... Things are going to be so bad that people wish to be sold to somebody else. That means that the people are going to be begging their captives, rather sell us as slaves, or even rather take us as slaves. That tells you how bad it is. If a person wants to be a slave, how terrible must their life be? And the Torah doesn't just say they want to be sold as slaves. It says they're going to ask to be sold to their enemies. How dire must their circumstances be that they wish to be sold to their enemies? Now you get the flow of Rashi who says next that nobody wants to buy them because all people want is to be rid of them. Initially, we would have thought, listen, it's just a factual round-off of the conversation. They want to sell you and nobody wants to buy you. Right? Uh, that, what that means, that what happens, people are in such a dire state that they want to sell themselves even to their enemies. So, if nobody wanted to buy them, okay, it's terrible. So they're stuck in what they originally were stuck in, this horrible environment that is so debilitating that they want to rather be sold. Rashi says, but that's not what the Pasuk's doing over here. It's not just telling us more information about what we already know. It's layering another layer of how difficult and horrible this particular rebuke and curse is. 
which is not a direct continuum from wanting to sell yourselves. Rashi says it's worse than that. Not only is it such a horrible state that they want to sell themselves, and not only is it practically that nobody wants to buy them, it's the reason that people don't want to buy them is they'd rather destroy them. The ultimate curse which would explain why it is the final blow of the entire uh, expression of these terrible curses. Okay, so that's on the negative side. On the negative side, Rashi has done a really good job of showing us it gets worse, and then it gets worse, and then it gets even worse. But we do know that if you take the perspective of Yena Shotera, that really means that there's brocha and opportunity, and then greater brocha and opportunity, and then even greater brocha and opportunity. So we have to now discover, because we already mentioned before, that inside Rashi's wording, we're going to be able to unearth the great brochas and the great opportunities. So let's find them. And we'll find them by asking a generalized question. Why would Hashem want us to go through all these difficulties? What, is he spiteful because he didn't do what I said? Now I'm going to punish you? Lightning bolts? No. The whole point of the rebuke and then the things that may actually happen as a result of the, of the rebuke is to wake us up to do tshuva. Pasuk says that after all these terrible things happen to you, then you will do tshuva and you'll return to Hashem. That's the reason that Hashem sends us these difficulties. And that's why when you reach the end of the Teichacha, that's when you find the greatest clue to well, what is the Teichacha all about in this Pasuk that we're analyzing now. In this Pasuk is where you're going to find embedded the purpose and objective of all of the Teichacha, which is Tshuva, and that elevates us obviously in a tremendous way. So what's so great about Tshuva? Tshuva is not a reset button. It's not wiping the slate clean and now you are where you started originally. Tshuva is a rebound that takes you higher than you ever were before. The greatness of Tshuva is the transformative power of Tshuva that takes things that previously were demerits, sins, and turns them into merits. Which implies that a Baal Tshuva has certain credits that even a perfect Tzadik will never have. Now we don't understand how that works. But so to understand it properly, you've got to dig deeper into the more Pneumius, deeper spiritual understanding. Beautiful explanation in Chassidus. One of the classic things that we know from early on in Tanya is that when a person does an Avera, effectively what they do is they take the potential sparks of holiness that should have been elevated out of an activity and you, you in, it literally enclose them and enslave them in the world of Klippa. So sparks of holiness are now trapped in the world of Klippa because of a person's choices. Then what happens? When a person does Tshuva, they extract those nitsoitzes that were stuck in Klippa. Even nitsoitzes that the person didn't put in Klippa was already there from before because a person entered a space they should never have gone into, the space of pure, of pure is an ironic word, of absolute Klippa. And you bring out the nitsoitzes of Kedusha that were locked there that a tzaddik could never go to because the tzaddik's never going to behave in that environment. Masha'en came but tzaddik. 
will only ever have the opportunity to elevate holy sparks that are in neutral territory, in power of territory, things that are not absolute evil. But a Baal Tshuva steps into absolute evil, hopefully inadvertently, and then through Tshuva brings that with him. So he elevates something that previously had no connection to, to holiness. If you consider that whatever sparks of holiness Hashem decided to scatter into those parts of the world that are off limits for us as Jewish people because they're so dark and toxic. So because those are the sparks that fell to the lowest dimension, that is evidence that those sparks originated at the highest levels because we know very well that that's how it operates. That the original spiritual source of these sparks of holiness is far, far greater than the original spiritual source of the sparks that fell into neutral territory. As we know very well that the principle says, the higher something is at its point of origin, the lower it falls when it must fall. So therefore, when a person through the process of teshuva elevates those parts of the world, those nitzotes of kedusha that fell into absolute cesspools, that generates from on high a far greater divine revelation than when you just stay the course of doing what Hashem wants. That's the deeper meaning of when it says Hashem will take you back to Mitzrayim. That's a summary of the whole purpose and objective of all of the Teichacha. Hashem bringing you back, well we know that the whole point of Teshuvah is to return, so Veheshivcha is linked to the word return. Which means, that the reason Hashem is taking you down this journey is to get you to a point of doing real tshuva. And the details of that tshuva are actually lined up in the Pasuk. First of all, it says you're going to be sold there, and not just sold there, but to your enemies to become their slaves. That means, what it means is you're going to go into the territory of your enemy. What's your enemy? Absolute klipa, impurity. That which is shom, distant, far, away from the source. That's where you're going to go. And no one's going to want to buy you except you're going to totally re-verbalize uh, that word, ve'em. As we know very famously, it says, that the Jewish people have no mazel, no fortune, so to speak, that you could read in the stars astrologically. Or, which is the highest dimension of Elikos, beyond anything that could be identified, that is mazel, what trickles down into the experience of the Jewish people. That is our source of everything, our source of life and brocha, etc., Likewise, yeah. What's going to happen because a person goes into the space of the enemy, into dangerous territory, and Veheshivcha comes out of there through Tshuva, so the result of that is Ayin Koine. What does Ayin Koine mean? Because we know when we refer to Hashem as Koinecho, the one who acquires us, we're talking about the level of Eloikus, which is in the highest identifiable world, Atzilis, 
And when we speak about Ayn, we're talking about a level that is beyond Atzidus, because even Atzidus, we could talk about it, we can describe it to a certain extent. Ayn has no description whatsoever. So we'll get Ayn to come into our reality, the highest dimension of it, of course, because you did Tshuva out of the place of Ayvecha. It's all achieved through the process of Tshuva. Then Rashi takes it even deeper. When you acknowledge that we as Jewish people are literally a piece of Hashem living inside a human body. It's ridiculous then to say, so Hashem allows a part of himself to enter into our world, go through all the journeys and challenges of life, which includes stepping into the wrong places occasionally. And what's the effect going to be? So I'm going to get those nitsoitas and those nitsoitas will be elevated and that's where it begins and ends. The real goal and purpose of this is that we as people will be so incredibly elevated through the experience. Because you know very well that the purpose of Teshuvah is not just to revolutionize the world that had previously been involved in impurity and is now elevated. The goal of Teshuvah is that the practitioner, the person, should be altogether elevated. So Rashi explains that in detail about being sold and nobody wants to buy you. Rashi says the word Vismakarta means you wish to be sold as a slave. What does that mean? Tushuva means you become Hashem's servant. What's the greatness of an Ebed? That it's something you want to do. It's not imposed on you. The ultimate Ebed Hashem is I want to be of service. That means to say that I'm serving Hashem of my volition and my drive. That's totally distinct from the way you serve Hashem as a child, which is what tzaddikim do. Why are tzaddikim compared to a child? Because it's natural for a child to love and be dedicated to his parents. It's natural for tzaddik to be dedicated to Hashem. Why is it tzaddik a tzaddik? Because the tzaddik has a very clear sense of godliness. So he's naturally magnetized and drawn towards Elikus. And that's It has absolutely nothing to do with the tzaddik's efforts and everything to do with Hashem's revelation. Whereas, and this is so beautiful to consider, when you assess a Baal from the outside, what do you see? A person who is very distant from God. Why does the Baal reconnect to Hashem? Not because he's had this great exposure, this epiphany, this miraculous moment of inspiration. It's not like a tzaddik who, who loves godliness and is therefore naturally propelled in that direction. In fact, to be a Baal Tshuva is the exact opposite. It's against the person's nature. Instead, a Baal Tshuva is somebody who worked to change to learn how to be drawn to Elikos. As Rashi says, you want to be sold as a, as a servant to Hashem. 
This is the primary, most important way to serve Hashem. Like a servant who doesn't do what the master says because he appreciates the greatness of the master. In fact, the servant would rather be doing something more leisurely. But the servant is willing to give of himself and commit himself and sacrifice himself to do what the master wants. That's the ultimate. Now let's look at the deeper meaning of herig vakilion, which on the face of it is a terrible thing. It means, God forbid, a genocide. But if you look at it with the deeper lenses, it's describing a very powerful, elevated spiritual state that we as Jews will and can achieve through uh, Tshuva. So what's it like to live in this world? You need to kill a few things if you want to live in this world. You've got to kill a few temptations. And you have to be oriented to say, I want to actually get higher than this world. You'd see, I mean, I'm leaving the world, but actually higher than this world. Kilion comes from the word nefesh to pine and yearn for connection to Hashem at, at whatever cost, even if that means I lose my identity and maybe even lose everything about this world. In other words, what Rashi is alluding to is that even while a person lives as a normal human here on earth, he could reach a point where he feels the same kind of spiritual rush that the neshama feels when it leaves the body. And we actually have an allusion to this at the end of the fifth paragraph. The Mishnah there says when a person reaches the age of 100, it's as if they have died and they're completely removed and, so to speak, irrelevant in the world. What does it mean according to Hasidus? When a person reaches the level represented by the age of 100, it's not an age according to the passport, rather, it means a person has achieved a hundred different spiritual levels. Which means that this person has worked through all the ten facets of their soul, and as each one of the ten is comprised of ten, as I over a bottle, that person is immune from the world. That person is completely beyond the reach of the temptations of the here and now. Therefore, he says, if he is dead, meaning, so that means that this is a person who could experience a vision of Hashem that's normally reserved only for a person who's no longer living because nobody can see Hashem and live. This person's not alive in the classical sense. Because this person is considered completely, so to speak, removed from the world. And he could already now, as a living human, see things reserved only for the neshama. So that's Herig Vakilian. So how does Rashi interpret the whole Pasuk Ve'ashivcha? It's a story of Tshuva. Where does Tshuva happen in the place of your enemies? In the place of your enemies, you want to sell yourself as Hashem's slave. You get in touch with the level of iron that is completely beyond everything else that reaches down to connect you. And what happens then? Herig killing you kill the temptations of this world and you aspire to get beyond the world to the state of spiritual death, sort of, well, physical death, spiritual awareness. Emma Sarihi, Shaloyak, Atecho, Gufa, Ilotecho, 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 
אלא גם הסיבה שאירס התיכו ילצריך התכלס של התשובה. Now the Rebbe takes it to a whole different level. So far we've said that everything described in this rebuke and curse is actually all brocha just in disguise. But now the Rebbe is going to say not only is the toichacha, which is the response from Hashem when we've done wrong, not only is that part of the great plan of elevation, but so are the things that led us to the toichacha. In other words, our misbehavior is also part of the plan. This is a revolutionary piece of the sicha. Beautiful perspective. Kloymer. At face value, why is there all this toichacha? Because we chose badly and we chose to do things against what Hashem wants with our own free choice. The truth is, even those choices are actually stimulated from Hashem. Sometimes Hashem leads us on to do an Avera so that we could do Tshuva, like the Gemara says about David HaMelech with Bathsheba and about the Jews on the Egel Azov, that we're not suited, it's not within our, our gamut that we should do these things. Why does it happen? In order that we should be able to achieve higher and greater things. That's alluded to in the Pasuk. What does Hashem say? I'll take you back to the path I told you not to go on. I'm going to take you where I told you not to go. Even when a Jew goes down a path of that which Hashem said don't go there, it is forbidden. Don't even look that way, Hashem says. Even that, when a person goes down that path by their own choice, is orchestrated also from on high by Hashem. Why? Because Hashem wants you to go there so that you'll be challenged, so that you can achieve tshuva, which will take you far higher than you could ever have gone if you were just on the straight and narrow. Rashi alludes to that when he says that they are going to go in ships, which means in captivity. What's Rashi telling us? When a Jew goes where a Jew should not go, when a Jew does what a Jew should not do, it's actually a form of captivity. It's actually Hashem nudging the person in that direction to facilitate the opportunity to do tshuva. And lastly, that will explain why Rashi felt the need to translate a word that we actually know. Now we understand why Rashi translates the word onios to sfinois. It's not just a translation. What Rashi wants us to know is that when you go from the perspective of Yenosh Torah, which Rashi is doing on this Pasuk, then it's important for us not only to know that they go in ships, but to know that ships are also called Sphinois. What does that mean? Outside of the captivity story, what is a ship for? To protect passengers as they transit across water. And they play a similar role in spiritual terms. And Hashemah comes down into this world, into the tempestuous waters of this world, the great challenges of living here. So the Neshama needs protection, not to drown. How do you get protection? The ships, as described in various places in Hasidus, represent 
the, the vessels that take us through the turbulence of this world, like the famous Boya La Teva, obviously of Noyach, that uh, the Teva represents the words of Torah. That's what navigates us through the, the stormy waters of life. And in that itself, there are two levels. Of Azayashan Shtey Madregas. Aleph, Onioys, Moshal Adavra, Megin, Bil, Shoyna Kodesh. You could refer to it as Onioys, which is the Hebrew, the holy tongue. Which would represent the path of the tzaddik. He's on 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 ships that are still in the realm of holiness, doing Torah mitzvahs, navigating the world through the world of through the the, the lens of holiness. Or you can get targum, or you get svinos as they are in the translation into Aramaic, which is not as holy a language. which means that a person has stepped out of the the environment of holiness into the environment of translation. You've stepped into the world of the nations. And we're supposed to be in that world in order to transform them into holiness. And that is navigating the sea through the vessel of Teshuvah that turns the negative into positive. Because the entire topic over here is the topic of how do you tackle that which happened because you did what was wrong. So you went down the road that Hashem said, never go then. Now you want to navigate your way back. You want to reach the huge elevation of Teshuvah. For that, you cannot just have the ships of holiness. You need the ships of touching the unholy, the ship of Teshuvah. So may it actually come to fruition that because we're learning not just the Teichacha, but the deeper meaning behind it, that should reveal those deeper hidden brochas into revealed goodness. Every one of us should be able to see the most clear brochas from Hashem in all the major areas of life. And all of the real curses should be redirected at our enemies. And each individual Jew, as part of the collective Jewish nation, should be signed and sealed for a good year in revealed terms. Until we have the ultimate bracha, the coming of Mashiach right now.